0: Now, it's a much smaller group, so I'm expecting 100%. Um, I asked this this morning, and I got a good response, but um, I wonder if everybody knows these words. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hands, show of hands. Good, everybody, excellent. Because that's a prayer that we pray often, and every time we pray that prayer, that's the one that Jesus taught his disciples. We're asking God to bring in the kingdom of heaven. But my question is, is that really what we want? Do we want the kingdom heaven to come? Last week, if you were here, we uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper. And one of the things we say during that is, come, Lord Jesus, come. And every time we do celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're looking forward to the coming of the kingdom. And in fact, we ask for it to come. In the words of Paul, as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we, re- we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, so the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of that final Messianic banquet in the new age when God's kingdom will have come in its fullness and God's work with this world will have been brought to completion. But do we have any do any of us actually want to attend that final banquet, or at least do we want to attend it soon? Jesus taught in his parables that the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price or like a treasure that's uncovered in a field. It was so valuable and so desirable that men were willing to sell everything that they had in order to get it. But how many of us would be willing to make that sacrifice, at least right now? We're not all sure that we want the kingdom of God to come right now, and I think that there's three reasons for that. The first is that most of us are actually pretty comfortable, and we have everything we need, and probably most of the things we want. The second is that Australia, the lucky country, the original worker's paradise, is already pretty close to heaven on earth. And the third is that we're not really sure what heaven is. It's vague and fluffy and remote from our daily lives and separated from all the people and things that we love so much. So in the first place, We're a very comfortable people. For the most part, we like our life as it is. Despite any problems that we might have with our marriages or with money or with jobs or families, we're really pretty happy. And Stuart told us last week that the research is in and we're the ninth happiest country in the world, so still punching above our weight. But all the same, every time we read a novel or go and see a movie, and even sometimes preachers do this, we get a very gloomy picture of how we, how we are. Movies, books, and especially the news are full of crime and misery, cruelty, violence, sometimes government conspiracies, and if we run out of ideas, then we could be attacked by aliens or zombies. But I'm not sure that all of this stuff is actually what our daily lives are really like. After all, most of us have families and friends who we love and jobs that keep us busy busy and happy, or at least secure. And a faith that sustains us in the rougher moments. Not that there isn't suffering in the world, and sometimes very close to home, but we seem to imagine things much worse than they really are. And while we may pray most Sundays for the kingdom of God to come, we would probably add, but not yet. Your kingdom come, Lord, but not just now. Besides, we might ask, in the second place, Haven't we achieved here in Australia a way of life for most of us that's just about as close to heaven on earth as we're likely to get? If we politely exclude some of the marginalised minorities, aren't we going to be fully employed, live in a nice place, be well fed, be surrounded by some pretty cool things and look pretty good in doing it into the bargain For the first time in history, those of us in the Western world have built societies in which most people no longer have to worry about the basic necessities of life. For most of history, people have been concerned about one thing, how to stay alive. Where their next meals coming from? Have they got enough shelter to live under? And do they have the right clothes to protect them against the elements? This was definitely true of the people of Jerusalem the ones who were listening to Zechariah preach about the kingdom. And if you're not familiar with Zechariah, he was speaking to God's people just after they returned from exile in Babylon. He was around at the same time as another prophet, Haggai, and was preaching just after Isaiah and Jeremiah. And Zechariah had listened to the preaching of Isaiah and Jeremiah and he took seriously the promises that he heard from them. In the face of the evidence on the ground, he believed promises like what Jeremiah tells us in chapter 29 of his book, and this is what it says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to a place from which I carried you into exile. And these are the very people that Zechariah is talking to a bunch of refugees who managed to survive the Babylonian destruction of their country in 587 BC. Some of them had spent years in exile in Babylon and they'd, be allowed, they'd been allowed to return 70 years later. The rest of them, the poorer classes, had been allowed to remain in Palestine all along and they'd simply scraped out a living in that devastated land as best they could. But now in the year 518 BC, when this passage in Zechariah was written, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, God's chosen people, were still in trouble. Their temple was a burnt-out ruin. Their city walls were nothing but rubble. Drought and blight withered their crops, and hunger was rampant. Inflation, caused by a shortage of everything, ate up anything that they could earn. They no longer had a king or a government Once a proud nation, they were just a tiny, impoverished sub-province in the vast Persian Empire. Their life was a matter of scratching around for the basic necessities. So no doubt, when they heard Zechariah preach this passage to them, they would have loved to have heard about the coming of the kingdom of God. They needed something better. And that's still true for most of the people on earth. Most people need something better because they still have to worry about simply managing to exist. But that's no longer true for most of us. We no longer need to worry about getting enough to eat. Actually, we worry about getting too fat. And if your grandparents were anything like mine, they were always talking about fattening us up. And eventually it works too, just so you know. But we even have to worry about our dogs and cats getting too fat now, and they end up on diets as well. And most of us have somewhere pretty nice to live, and these days clothes are for fashion, not function. And like Stuart told us last week, because all our needs are being met, we can make the things we want sound like the things we need. Sometimes we're self-aware enough to know that our problems probably aren't as bad as we're letting on. So we call them first world problems. We're so free of anxiety about the basic necessities of life that we can just choose to worry about which smartphone to buy, how many we should plan for the party next week, or which restaurant puts the most organic whole foods in their dishes, or whether my car really fits with my personality. We've pretty much got it made, we think. So who wants to leave all that for some unknown thing called the kingdom of God? Who wants to give up the good life in Australia for some ethereal realm in the sky? And maybe that's the third reason we don't really want the kingdom of God to come. Because we think of it as some vague realm, way off in heaven somewhere, separated from all the good things that we so enjoy in life. We have some strange pictures of the kingdom of God. Usually we think of it as a place in heaven where we go after we die. And our pictures of the kingdom have been influenced by all those stories of pearly gates and fluffy clouds and harps and angels flying around. We've inherited those pictures from a whole bunch of different sources, from books like Pilgrim's Progress, from The Art of Rubens and Michelangelo, from Negro spirituals that sing about golden slippers walking on golden streets. And even the imagery and symbolism of the Bible itself. We put those pictures into our hymns. Holy, holy, holy runs the second verse of a well-known hymn. All the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, who were and art and evermore shalt be. And none of that makes very much sense to us, nor does it sound all that appealing. And so we might pray the Lord's Prayer for God's kingdom to come, but we're not sure we want it. So let's seek the kingdom of earth and let heaven take care of itself. Now in the Bible, there is a reality to heaven. It's the dwelling place of God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, the biblical writers strain at the limits of human language to try and describe that place. And maybe it really is a combination of all those popular images we have in our heads. But Zechariah had a teacher in Isaiah who gave him a very different version of what heaven's like. And in Isaiah 11, we hear a promise about the coming one and the kind of kingdom that he's bringing And it goes like this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And then it says, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it sounds a long way off from glassy seas in white robes and pearly gates. And alongside that, the prophet Zechariah gives us another different, much more relatable picture of the kingdom of heaven. And like Isaiah's, it's a picture grounded very much in the realities of this earth. Let me read it to you again. This is what the Lord says, I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. What's the kingdom of God according to Isaiah? To Zechariah? It's a public park. And if you were lucky enough this afternoon to go to one of the parks around here or probably anywhere in Sydney today, hopefully you would have seen a glimpse of what heaven's like, at least to Zechariah. Heaven's a park where old people are no longer cold and lonely and ill and senile, but participants in a community. It's a public park where the elderly can sit together and bask in the sun and talk and laugh over the good old days in full vigour and clear mind and satisfaction of life. The Kingdom of God God, is a public park where little children can run and play in safety and fun and delight. It's a place where no predator is waiting to lure one of them away with offers of lollies, where no drug dealer is lurking to tempt the older children to try whatever they're selling. It's a place where no child is abused or unwanted or malnourished and where there's not even a bully among the group shoving and taunting the other kids until they burst into tears. The kingdom of God, says Zechariah, is a public park where the streets are safe for children. Is that what you think of when you think of heaven? You see, the kingdom of God, according to the Bible, is not some never-never land way off in the sweet by and by. Most of the Bible actually is not very interested in heaven. The kingdom of God is life on this earth, but life transformed to a called with the will and purpose of a loving God. The Lord's Prayer does not say, your kingdom come in heaven. It says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God works to accomplish his will for the earth. He works to fulfill his purpose and his intention for human life in the world here and now. His intention is to see new life come to every home here in Orrin Park and the growing southwest, but everywhere else too. He's pressing on towards the time when this solid everyday land of ours will become the good place that he intended it to be in the beginning. And in light of all that, it's clear that we don't yet have it made, that we're not yet living in the kingdom of God, not even here in the lucky country. Because in the kingdom of God, our streets will be safe for children. And right now, they're far from being fit places for our little ones. Few parents would send their child into any of our parks now unaccompanied, even in a relatively safe place like Orrin Park, because our parks and our streets are not fit for children. On the streets of our cities, in our own country, children are sleeping rough, scrounging through garbage for food, and forced into crime and worse just to get by. Maybe not here in Oran Park, but not very far away. There's children in parts of Africa that are dying by the hundreds every day through malnutrition, which is a soft way of saying starvation. Children in countries like El Salvador still fall victim to murderous sweeps of death squads. The Rohingya people are now refugees from the country that they fled to as refugees. Children in Syria watch as their friends and parents are killed and their homes destroyed. And since that is true, can we not, and must we not daily pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, bring in the time when our streets will be fit for our children. Because if that time is not coming, then there really isn't much point to all that you or I are doing. If Zechariah's vision is not the goal of human history, then there is no purpose to our journey on earth. The kingdom of God, a place where little children can play, that is the goal for which we must pray and yearn and struggle. Zechariah is also telling us that the kingdom will not have come until our children are also fit for our streets. And that means that we all have work to do. I'm not saying that by our own efforts we can create the kingdom, because only God can do that. But having seen Zechariah's vision of what God's final purpose is for this earth, we can at least say yes to that purpose of good and try to live our lives in line with it. And that means we have work to do as parents and grandparents and teachers and examples and friends and leaders. It's not enough that we accept God's purpose by working in society society to make streets fit for children. We also have to work in our homes, in our schools, our churches, our workplaces, in the shopping centres, in holiday resorts, in RSL clubs, in sports grounds, and anywhere else that we find ourselves to raise children who are fit for our streets. So we need to be at home for our children We all have jobs and responsibilities that we have to attend to but we constantly should be asking ourselves, are we raising children who are fit for our streets? A child who's not been taught right from wrong is not fit to be loosed on society. A child who has no discipline is a child without limits on their selfishness. A child who has not been loved and encouraged and praised and hugged is a child who can never love others. And a child who's not been taught that there is a sovereign God to whom they're responsible is a child who will never use their God-given talents wisely and therefore will have no purpose and meaning for their life. And we're all children, no matter how old we are. And if our parents can no longer help us, then the rest of this family has to step in. Are we raising children who can contribute to their fellow human beings? who know how to love God and their neighbour? Or are we perpetuating the evils of this life in the children entrusted to us? These are the questions we have to keep asking. Are we raising children who are fit to receive the kingdom of God? But maybe we can only raise children like this if we ourselves are fit. Maybe our children will be ready for the kingdom only if we ourselves as parents and grandparents and leaders and friends and citizens are also ready for it. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. And in parable after parable, he instructed us how to become citizens of the kingdom. We can't earn our way into the kingdom of God, he said, by our own good deeds and by our own fine works, because the kingdom of God is a gift simply given to all the workers equally in the vineyard nor can we buy our way into the kingdom of God, no matter how much money we might have. We might be able to buy the best clothes and food and somewhere to live. We might be able to purchase the latest technology or the best education, a great house and time in the sun, but we can't buy that kingdom of God that Zechariah pictures. With its peace and contentment, contentment, its secure joy, and it's happy elders and children. In fact, Jesus taught it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God at all. Because, you see, rich people tend to depend on themselves and their wealth. When what we have to do to be citizens of the kingdom, whether we're rich or poor or middle class, is to to depend solely on God and him working in our lives. Because in the end, we don't become members, we become children, and as God's children, we have to trust Him. And so it finally comes down, it seems, to that story we heard from Matthew's gospel. That story in which Jesus took that little child and put him in front of everyone as an example. So if we turn back to Matthew, or turn forward to Matthew from where we were in Zechariah, just the last little bit there, it goes like this At that time, the disciples came. To Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So it comes down to humbly depending on God as a child depends on their father. For in the kingdom of God, God is truly king. He rules. He orders life. His will is done. And until we stop trying to be our own gods, and until we cease making decisions apart from God's will, until we stop thinking that anything goes and start asking what God wants, and until we stop relying on our own strength to live righteous and meaningful and decent lives in the world we will never be ready to say the words your kingdom come and neither will our children it's no wonder that Zechariah can picture that happy public park in his prophecy because the happiness in that park depends on something else it depends on the fact that God dwells in the midst of that city and orders and rules its life and so you see if our children are are to be fit for the streets of the city They have to be raised by parents and adults who depend on the will and power of god they have to be raised by adults who themselves have become humble as a little child is humble they have to be guided by people who can truly pray our father your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven but if we can truly pray that prayer if we can want god's will for our lives and for the lives of our children with all our hearts and minds and strength, and understand that God offers us free grace but not cheap grace, then maybe we and our children will be ready to receive our King and his kingdom that's coming. Because the kingdom's coming, friends. It's coming. There's no mistake. And it began to come that night when one child who is fit for all streets and in all places and all times was born in the city of Bethlehem. It began when God himself drew near to us and dwelt with us in fulfilment of Zechariah's promise. It began when that one child, grown up, died on a cross and was raised to new life by his father and became victor over all the evil and violence, all the ugliness and death that haunt our communities. And so we know in Jesus... That Zechariah's promise will finally be, finally be fulfilled and that our city and the cities of the world will become faithful cities. God will dwell with us as our ruler and as our father. He will be our God and we will be his people. And old men and women shall sit again in the park, each with staff in hand for very age. And the streets of our city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the squares. Lord, let your kingdom come, yes, quickly come, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Question and answer time. Anybody have any questions? And I will phone a friend if they're too hard for me. Well, it could be tomorrow um, because nobody knows exactly when it'll be. But it'll be, um, and we could flick to Revelation, but the, the picture is that we don't go so much to heaven, but heaven comes to us and the earth will be renewed and there'll be no more tears or weeping and we'll be living in the new Jerusalem. So it's, it's a time when the earth is fixed and back to the way it should have been in the beginning. you know what, I don't know, maybe you get to pick, maybe you get to be your best self, don't know, but, um, but that's the picture Zechariah gives, is he trying to give us an exact picture, probably not, he's trying to give us, this is what it'll feel like, um, so I don't know, maybe we will fly around and have wings and play harps, I'm hoping that's not true either, but it, no, we don't know, but in a sense we will be our best selves, whatever that is, so, and we'll have new bodies and everything will be great. There could even be spiders there, who knows? But by then they'll be great too. So It's vague and it's not vague. It will still be familiar enough. But all the good things about the earth will still be there. Well, rivers and oceans and... No, see, so the Garden of Eden, if you take Garden of Eden as, if you like, heaven before, or there was trees and rivers and dirt and work, um, so things to do. Perhaps not, well, we could talk about this for a long time but, um, but it is probably poetic and yet there are parts of it that are absolutely literal um, and one of those is that the earth was created and it was good. Um, maybe we can't quite imagine everything in the earth being good just yet but all the good things that we do know, I imagine they'll be there and there might be other things that we don't know about yet. Um, I'm not exactly going to dodge that but um, that's a really interesting period and I'm not sure what the thousand years means and I'm not sure what that will feel like and if it was to start tomorrow I don't know whether that would mean that we're all still here to live through it or because some of the imagery in that in in Revelation is is difficult to interpret and um yeah, anyway, none of us live for a thousand years, so I don't really know how that's going to work out. But when Jesus comes, everything will be different. It won't be like the first time where he's localised. Somehow, everyone will know. And I think that's a very different world that we can't really imagine just yet. So I'm going to get off before I get any more hard questions.